It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Being a journalist means never having to say you're sorry. I'm serious. We are now being treated to the spectacle of all of these anchors and pollsters and pundits and commentators and prognosticators and bloviators who got it wrong, who blew the election, who thought there would be a pretty big red wave, giving us their analysis of what happened. It's hysterical. Let's dive right in. Story number one. First of all, President Biden originally, when everybody, apparently including the White House, thought that it would be a disastrous day for the Dems. And you know that's true because they were all finger pointing. Well, we should have done this. We should have done that. You know, starting about a week before the actual election day. Well, he was having a good time yesterday. Before we knew about this, the word was, oh, why did Biden have to come out and hold a traditional news conference as Obama did to talk about a shellacking as George W. Bush did, as Trump did when they had their own midterm problems? You know, just put out a statement, you know, talk to the press. But instead, the President of the United States came out and <laughs> held forth for a very long time. And let me just say, I haven't seen Biden seemingly enjoy himself this much since probably he won the South Carolina primary back in 2020. And he said, he took, you know, he chided the geniuses of the fourth estate. He said, you know, the pundits and the press said there was going to be a big red wave. He also sort of called it a good day for democracy. And he also, uh, I mean, it became like this wide-ranging news conference. The thing I don't understand about Biden is he, he pulls a piece of paper out and says, all right, I have been handed a list of 10 journalists that I'm supposed to call on, rather than just, you know, do it. He said, you know, you should each get one question. I know there'll be the inevitable follow-up. But then he let just about every single reporter ask three and four questions. And, you know, he said, well, this is taking a long time. And look, he also could have just said, okay, we can't get through the whole list of 10. At one point he said, you know, I got to meet with uh, some Republican leaders. Can't get through the whole list of 10 and, 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 and walk away. But he was enjoying himself, talking about everything. It was, you know, he just, I think he was just having a great time. And he seemed confident. And, you know, I mean, he just dodged this bullet. Knowing full well, and he was asked about the House, and he said, look, it's not clear what's going to happen. But either way, one party or the other will only be ahead, will only have a margin of a few votes. Not the 30 or 40 votes that had been so widely predicted for the GOP. Remember when uh, Axios had a red tsunami watch? Um, and he just, you know, and he didn't want to answer a question. I mean, he was asked, you know, how are you going to work with Kevin McCarthy? Uh, and he said, he is the minority leader. 
or he is the Republican leader, of course, because we didn't know which way it's going to go. Um, not, he's a great guy, I've known him a long time, you know, he wasn't, uh, you know, he kept saying, and, and look, to Biden's credit, he passed a lot of bipartisan legislation. I'm going to work with my friends across the aisle. I think MAGA Republicans are a minority. I don't agree with that, given Donald Trump's kind of control of the party. Um, are you going to run? It's my intention to run. When are you going to decide? Well, you know, I've got to talk to my family. I have every intention of running, you know, probably next year. Uh, what about the fact that some poll shows that 75% don't want you to run? And Biden said, so what? <laughs> That's how you act when you're kind of on top of the world. And by the way, a lot of those are Republicans. We'll have to see what the what the new polls, what the polls meanwhile, were just the polling industry is just so screwed up right now, as is the punditry industry. So Biden having a good time, no hurry to walk off the stage there. So let me just go through some of the coverage. And you know what I didn't see? I didn't see, maybe there were some individual journalists here and there. I didn't see anybody in the, in the major news organizations say, you know what, we blew it, and here's why. Or you know what, here's what we got wrong. Here's how we can do better. Here's why we blew the election that we spend so much airtime and so much money on polls and so many uh, acres of print covering. By the way, Fox had the most viewers of any network, broadcast or cable, 7 million more than CNN and MSNBC combined. CNN finishing third for the first time, I think, ever. Uh, and the broadcast networks, I think, are no longer, you know, the place to go for news because cable does so much of it. In any event, let me lead off with Politico. A surge in turnout among people motivated by the erosion of abortion rights, which everybody said wasn't a big issue anymore, Carry Democrats to victory in races for governor, Senate, Attorney General, and state legislatures, defying predictions that the issue had faded for voters in the months since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Okay, defying predictions. That's the passive voice. Who made these predictions? It was the media that set the expectations. It was the media that made these predictions. This is like Ronald Reagan saying mistakes were made in the aftermath of the Iran-Contra scandal. Defying predictions. It's just passive. It wasn't, I, did we say that? I don't recall that. Okay. Washington Post. You know, everybody's got five takeaways, 17 takeaways, whatever. The big red wave that some on the right had predicted and that the GOP-aligned polls were increasingly indicated did not materialize. And both takeovers are in some jeopardy, meaning... Will the Republicans even control the House? Still overwhelmingly favorite. And will they control the Senate? Okay, this is just, to use Joe Scarborough's favorite new word, bullshit, that some on the right had predicted. That it was only conservatives, right? Because then it's okay, then it's not us. It's not the Washington Post. That some on the right had predicted. 
The Democrats were engaged in a furious debate about why they were about to get their asses handed to them. Major news organizations, reporters, commentators would go on the air and say, well, you know, it may not be as bad as all that, but to, to push this off as some vast right-wing conspiracy and GOP-aligned polls, well, there were also Democratic-aligned polls balancing it out. I, I, I'm just actually stunned. I think that's a really cheap way to do it. It wasn't us. We didn't get it wrong. What are you talking about? The right. New York Times. Republican control of the House was all but a foregone conclusion heading into Tuesday, but Democrats outran the polls and projections. Uh, excuse me, Ms. Gray Lady. Who made these projections? Who decided it was a foregone conclusion? Again, passive voice. No mention of the press, no mention of, hey, you know, we might have been wrong. I mean, the New York Times, it's just, everybody did it. Okay. Now, when you get to the people on the right, and by the way, from the TV I've watched today, um, it is conservatives who seem chastened because they were preparing for a big night, just as you would expect. And then, you know, the Rachel Maddows of the world are they're giddy. Joy Reid, you know, the whole liberal lineup that they had on the air uh, on Tuesday night compared to, as I mentioned, the all-journalistic lineup, meaning that, they, that, that the coverage on Fox and CNN was led by journalists, not that they didn't have their share of partisans and prognosticators on. But they're disappointed. This was an election. If you look at the way things lined up, people fearful of crime, that was real, wasn't made up. People hurt by inflation. Yeah, you know, if you're living, if your salary hasn't increased, you're worried about the economy. That wasn't made up. Prices are highest, the rate of growth and in inflation highest in, what, 40 years? That wasn't made up. Meanwhile, you know, Biden's talking about democracy, and everybody was convinced. I mean, the abortion rights thing, I think, was, was crucial. We see that in some of the referenda around the country. Because people would be asked in these polls, what's the most important issue to you? And unlike in the summer, not many said abortion because they were asking you to, to isolate it. But in exit polls, if you believe exit polls, 27% said it was the most important issue to them. And clearly, not just Democratic women, but, and not just women, but I think one exit poll showed about 60%, you know, as before Roe, still think there should be some access to abortion. Suburban women, independents, you name it. And here's National Review, um, piece by Charles Cook, saying if Republicans have any intention of turning around their party's increasingly moribund fortunes, Republican voters must respond Tuesday night's profoundly disappointing midterm election result by telling the Republican establishment to pound sand. That's right. It is time for Donald Trump to go. I'm not being cute. Trump is the Republican establishment now. He's the default, the man, the swamp. It is Trump who is widely considered the front runner for the party's nomination in 2024. It is Trump 
whose endorsements are treated as if they were official edicts. It is Trump to whom the press and public tend to link all GOP nominees. And the conservative New York Post has been brutal toward Donald Trump. Yesterday's banner headline on the front, the wood, as it's called in tabloid parlance, Trumpy Dumpty, picturing Donald as a giant egg about to fall off a wall. The previous day, it was the future, D-E, future, with a picture of Ron DeSantis uh, celebrating his landslide win in Florida. You think there's a message in those uh, headlines? And in the paper yesterday, uh, the Trumpy Dumpty paper, columnist John Podhoritz, I mean, longtime conservative, uh, founding uh, member of the Weekly Standard, uh, you know, a guy who's been a reliable voice on the right. Look at what he says in his column. If the three straight national tallies in which either he or his party, or both, were hammered by the national electorate, it's time for even his stands to accept the truth. Toxic Trump is the political equivalent of a can of raid. Yow. Uh, what Tuesday night's results suggest is that Trump is perhaps the most profound vote repellent in modern American history. The surest way to lose in these midterms was to be a politician endorsed by Trump. This is not hyperbole. Again, I'm reading to you from conservative writers and tweeters and magazines and tabloid folks. Uh, there's a lot of soul-searching on, on Fox News last night. Laura Ingram, in what comments seem pretty much aimed at the president who she has uh, consistently supported, talked about the Republican Party uh, having to expand beyond its base. I saw Jesse Waters say that too. I mean, a lot of people feel like they need to rethink the approach to just having, you know, the MAGA base. Uh, uh, Laura said, it is not about any one person. If the voters conclude that you're putting your own ego or your own grudges ahead of what's good for the country, they're going to look elsewhere, period. And by the way, there was one uh, column I saw uh, addressing the failure of the press, and that was Dana Milbank in the Washington Post, who said, I'm sorry to say that my colleagues in the political press blew it. And he cites a bunch of headlines from the Post, New York Times, Axios, you name it. Uh, he said that he didn't buy into that because he thought there was a lot of Republican junk polls that were creating the uh, illusion or expectation of a red wave. But at least somebody, beside me that is, is calling out the press. The number of people in Trump's own inner orbit Jason Miller, Kaylee McEnany, his former press secretary, saying on Fox he should postpone. He shouldn't announce for president next Tuesday, which would be a significant backing down for Donald Trump. And Donald Trump does not like to do that. By the way, he, he did say on Truth Social that it was a, a disappointing night in many ways, but not for him because he just he cooked up some figure he's got, you know, 109 wins and seven or nine losses. That's how Trump interprets everything. I mean, whether you agree with the numbers or not. But look, it was Trump who picked Dr. Oz, who lost to Fetterman, which Trump now apparently deeply regrets, and he's looking for people to blame. It was Trump who picked Tudor Dixon in Michigan, who got trounced 
by Gretchen Whitmer. It was Trump who picked Blake Masters in Arizona. We'll see when more votes come in, whether he can come back. I think between Nevada and Arizona, that there's likely to be a split. I think it's just, you know, this is not a prediction. This is just reading the tea leaves of what has come in, what hasn't come in, um, that Adam Laxalt will wind up ousting Democratic Senator Catherine Cortez Masto. And that in Arizona, there's a pretty good chance that Mark Kelly will hang on to his lead. Although, again, we have to see whether Blake Masters can get enough votes outstanding and where those votes come from uh, to flip that. I mean, if the Republicans win both those races, Georgia runoff is irrelevant. If the Democrats win both those races, Georgia runoff is irrelevant. But if they are split, the December 6th runoff between Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock will be the ball game. And that's why you have a lot of Republicans saying, the wor- because it would be a replay of 2020, the worst thing that Trump could do would be to be a declared presidential candidate as we head into yet another Georgia runoff. Um, Peace in the Atlantic. Um, why did pundits and commentators seem certain over the past few weeks that Democrats faced electoral calamity? Joe Rogan predicted a red wave resembling the elevator scene from The Shining. Uh, conservative pundits such as Ari Fleischer predicted a similar bloodbath. Quote, part of my prediction, and this is uh, Brett Stevens, New York Times columnist, is that Democrats will wake up Wednesday morning with a powerful impulse to move to Canada or Belgium to take advantage of their permissive assisted suicide programs. Well, I don't think anybody's going to be killing themselves, Brett. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. All right, story number two, Ross Douthat, never Trump, moderate conservative columnist for the New York Times, talking about Ron DeSantis, and he's not the only one. Okay, if you're a Republican, he's going through, you know, what happened. This is all reason for severe disappointment, unless you're a Republican with your eyes and hopes on Ron DeSantis as a potential presidential candidate in 2024. A world where Florida delivers a Republican landslide while the GOP underperforms elsewhere, is quite possibly your ideal scenario. Douthat goes on to say, the theory basically is that there's an anti, there's a decisive right of Senate majority there for the taking in American politics, an opportunity magnified by the Biden administration's unpopularity. It's a majority that Donald Trump pushed the party toward by picking up working-class white voters in 2016 than Hispanic voters in 2020, proving the GOP coalition could be more blue-collar and multiracial 
than its Romney-Ryan iteration. But Trump himself, says Ross, is just too much, too erratic and polarizing and plainly dangerous to complete the realignment on his own. And his influence on the party as a whole, manifest in the underperforming candidates he elevated in this cycle, is preventing the new GOP majority from taking its natural shape. States like Pennsylvania, Arizona, Georgia, maybe even New Hampshire should have been easy Republican pickups. All they needed was a normal set of Senate nominees. Instead, they got the kind of nominees Trump wanted, and the result is difficulty, defeat, disappointment, and votes being counted late into the night. Not to mention, you know, I'm watching all of the figures today, and in all those states, Arizona and so forth, Nevada, where it's stuck, it didn't move one vote. I understand some of this is coming from, you know, mail ballots, whatever, but like, why can't we count votes faster in this country? It didn't move one vote. Now, doubt it did uh, allow that DeSantis has a kind of an anti-charisma, but he said in a normal political world, a normal political party, you would say that DeSantis effectively became the 2024 Republican front runner on Tuesday night. But we don't live in a normal political world. And, um, it's not 100% clear to me that DeSantis is going to run, but if he's ever going to run, he may as well run now. And one of two things will happen. Uh, people will coalesce behind him as a younger generation guy with a Trumpian approach, but without all the baggage. Or he'll get his clock cleaned. Only one way to find out. Um, and by the way, you know, DeSantis combined his war on woke liberalism and, you know, those hot-button cultural issues with more, I guess you'd say, uh, moderate policies designed to appeal to a majority of Floridians on the environment, on education. And he didn't rush in with a let's ban abortion completely. He stuck with what he'd had before, a ban after 15 weeks. Unacceptable to abortion rights supporters, but not as draconian as, you know, totally pro-life with no possible exceptions. So he has a pretty good ear for Florida politics. Whether he has a good feel for national politics is something we may find out. Number three, Mike Pence yesterday basically declared against Donald Trump. I mean, we all knew Pence's eyeing a run. And he's got this book coming out. So what did he do yesterday when Trump was getting all kinds of criticism for the handpicked candidates uh, that blew what should have been winnable elections? He drops an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal that's an excerpt from the memoir. And he says things that he's never revealed before about his relationship with the former president. And it's really worth listening to this because if Pence has a lane, it's saying, you know, he supported Donald Trump's policies, but not the craziness of January 6th. I'm not sure he does have a lane because I think a lot of people on the center left are still going to say, you know, are still going to say he was a loyal lapdog to Trump until the very end. And people on the right are going to think he 
at least in the MAGA writer, say he betrayed Donald Trump. Okay, in a December 5th call, the president for the first time mentioned challenging the election results in Congress. Uh, the internet was soon filled with speculation about my role. An irresponsible TV ad by the Lincoln Project suggested that when I presided over the January 6th joint session, it would prove I knew it's over. I would be putting the final nail in the coffin of the president's re-election. First time anyone that he knew of implied that I might be able to change the outcome. It was designed to annoy the president. It worked. Trump told me the ad looked bad for you. I said I would support all legal challenges. December 19th, president mentions plans for a rally in Washington on January 6th. December 23rd, my family got on Air Force Two to spend Christmas with friends. Trump retweeted an obscure article entitled Operation Pence Card. It alluded to the theory that if all else failed, I could alter the outcome of the election. I showed it to Karen, my wife, and rolled my eyes. Okay, it gets better. Early on New Year's Day, the phone rang. Uh, Texas Republican Louis Gomer and other Republicans had filed a lawsuit asking a federal judge to declare that I had exclusive authority and sole discretion to decide which electoral votes should count. President told him, I don't want to see Pence opposes Gomer's suit as a headline this morning. If it gives you the power, he asked, why would you oppose it? I told him as I had many times. I didn't believe I'd possess that power under the Constitution. You're too honest, Trump said. Hundreds of thousands are going to hate your guts, Trump said. People are going to think you're stupid. You have gone from very unpopular to popular, he exclaimed. But then he said, reject those electoral votes. You can be a historic figure, but if you wimp out, you're just another somebody. January 5th, urgent call from the president. Come to the Oval. John Eastman, the guy who wasn't even willing to say that we could win this in the Supreme Court, was now saying I should simply reject the electors. Donald Trump went into me. You'll go down as a wimp. If you do that, I made a big mistake five years ago. But when Trump said, you're not protecting our country, you're supposed to support and defend our country, I calmly reminded him, we both took an oath to support and defend the Constitution. Okay, so then the riot happens. Pence and his family are trapped there. They decide not to leave because Pence didn't want it to seem that he was fleeing the scene. He showed uncommon courage, even as Trump was tweeting negatively about him as the mob overran the Capitol Police. Finally, January 11th. So now it's about five days later. I met with the president. He looked tired. How are you, he began. How are Karen and Charlotte? I replied tersely they were fine and that they had been in the Capitol on January 6th. I just learned that, Trump said, really. Were you scared? No, said Trump. Sorry, we did do that. No, said Pence. I was angry. You and I had our differences that day, Mr. President, and seeing those people tearing up the Capitol infuriated me. He started to bring up the election, saying people were angry, but his voice trailed off. I told him he had to set that aside, and he responded quietly, yeah. With genuine sadness in, the voice, in his voice, the president mused, what if we hadn't had the rally? What if they hadn't gone to the Capitol? Then he said, it's too terrible to end like this. But whose fault was it that it ended like that? And of course, during that period when it sounded like Trump maybe kind of sort of would concede, he changed his mind, rigged elections, stolen election, something that he has pursued 
without evidence, despite all his claims to the contrary, to this day. So there's Mike Pence kind of slamming the football in the end zone there with his version of what happened as published in the Wall Street Journal. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. All right, story number four. Um, I want to come back to Ukraine because yesterday, as Biden pointed out, they waited until after the election. Russia's defense minister announced on TV that he was ordering the retreat of Moscow's forces from the very important southern city of Kherson. This is a big blow to the Putin war effort because it shows you that the Ukrainian counteroffensive has been successful and the Russians are fearing mass casualties. So the defense minister uh, came out and said, after meeting with the military brass, that it was a difficult decision, but a withdrawal would preserve lives of servicemen and combat readiness of forces. This is, if it happens, a tremendous moral victory and just the sheer bravery and courage of Ukrainians who are continuing, for example, I mean, there may be, I mean, Kyiv, after this long-range bombing, is looking at a possible winter without power. And here, they basically have driving the Russians out of something the Russians thought they could hold. Now, a Ukrainian general said, well, this seems to be real because rather than trying to draw the Ukrainians into a, a feint, they've been um, blowing up bridges that would have allowed our forces to advance. We see them leaving population centers. But it still could be misdirection. This colonel said, we are watching. That makes sense. I can't exaggerate um, what a potential turning point this might be. Now, does it mean that Russia and Ukraine are now going to negotiate over peace? I doubt it. I think they'll both hunker down for the winter and see what happens by spring. But I do think that if President Biden has been emboldened, especially if the Dems keep the Senate, but regardless, because he still has veto power, uh, he is going to triple down on the idea that we must support Ukraine. Now, he did say at that marathon news conference that it's not a blank check to Ukraine, that he's turned certain things down that would have drawn the U.S. possibly into World War III, like longer-range missiles where they could attack Russia um, or control the skies over Ukraine. So no blank check, but certainly many, many, many billions of dollars in U.S. aid, and in fairness, you know, in aid from uh, the NATO allies. I, I Just because I got to end with something lighter here, story number five, Jennifer Aniston in a cover story on Allure magazine. Uh, the author read uh, a text to Jennifer saying, no one's ever going to be famous the way she is. That kind of mass fame phenomenon burning so bright for so long, it's just not achievable today. She's like a silent film star among a generation of TikTok dip blanks. Whoa, oh, that just gave me chills, Jennifer Aniston said. I'm a little choked up. 
I feel like it's dying. There are no more movie stars. There's no more glamour. Even the Oscar parties used to be so fun. She also said she hates social media. She had largely stayed off, but when she finally got onto Instagram in 2019, it was such a frenzy that the app crashed, at least briefly. She has 40 million followers on Instagram. So you could say, well, I mean, she's on there, isn't she? But she says that she got on only to promote and market her hair care company, which specializes in eco-friendly products. I hate social media, Addison said. I'm not good at it. It's torture for me. The reason I went on Instagram was to launch this line. Then the pandemic hit and we didn't launch. So I was stuck with just being on Instagram. It doesn't come naturally. Um, Maybe the lack of social media is one reason that Friends is a big hit in streaming. There are people who say that watching Friends has saved them or that so many people with so much gratitude for a little show. I mean, it it wasn't a little show. We really loved each other. We took care of each other. I don't know why it still resonates. There were no iPhones. It's just people talking to each other. Nobody talks to each other anymore. And that's true. How many people do you just text with? Oh, you text me and I'll text you. And yeah, let's get together for lunch sometime. So some wisdom from Jennifer Addiston to close out the podcast. Um, I'm going to return to my theme. First of all, thank you for listening which is all the people who got it wrong are now saying, well, gee, those predictions, those expectations, that wasn't us. We're going to tell you what really happened now. (laughs) I think this business needs to do some soul searching, and I'll include myself in that. And with that, you can subscribe. You get this ad free on Amazon Music or Apple iTunes. Back here tomorrow with more BuzzMeter. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.